Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that encourages you to paint a castle in the sky and then go live in it. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This episode is brought to you in part by Disruptor-level patrons Will McCauley, Raymond Kloss, and Andrew Fisher. Thanks for your help in bringing this show back to the air. You can find back episodes and spread the word at newdisrupt.org. Jamie Newberry has long been known as somebody who gets users. She knows how people tick, and rather than manipulate them, she has used her superpower to design and develop interactive interfaces that people loved, from the earliest days of the broad adoption of the web through the mobile revolution and iOS. That superpower turned out to have level ups. Five years ago, she transitioned from user experience design to being a speaker, corporate coach, and experimenter who has traveled the globe to pass on her insights. But that's not what sucked up most of her time for the last couple of years and what we'll talk about today. Jamie is the co-founder of Picture This Clothing. Draw a picture or take a picture and get it put on a dress or a t-shirt. It's that simple. Well, it's that simple for the maker, which is what Jamie is all about. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm I'm great. And I I just drew a through line across your whole career so we can talk from start to finish. Um, I was just smiling the whole time. I was like, oh, I sound so nice in this description. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I think it's a true thing. I mean, I I would love to start talking in this like a a 35,000 foot level for just a moment, uh, which is about empathy and user experience and uh, user interface design, kind of that whole space. Because I always felt like you, whenever I hear you talk or write about this subject, that um, uh, you understand what users want and need at a very fundamental level, not at a, I mean, there's all the technology too, but I feel like you make a connection that allows you to practice empathy with people through a screen. How does that work? You know, I think, um, well, I think emotional intelligence, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn in any way. I just, I think there's a, an element there that is important of a certain amount of emotional intelligence. But I really have to credit a lot of my my work history in that regard to um, really early in my career. I was um, just kind of a PA or an intern, sort of. Um, I was doing some heuristic reviews with the Nielsen Norman group, um, just as a, like a, you know, just as a helper, I was just, they needed some extra hands and I happened to be one of those hands because our uh, company was working with that, with them to do reviews on websites. So, so that the Nielsen Norman group, if you're not familiar with the Nielsen Norman group, the Norman of that is Don Norman, who is actually the guy who coined the, the term user experience. Um, so this was back in like 1998, 99, um, when I, I got to do some heuristic reviews on some websites and I, I had the, the opportunity to watch senior citizens use the internet, um, at that point. And it changed my life. Like it, it really, I, I, I know it's technology, but it, it changed everything. Um, and I was just fresh, you know, I was, I barely knew how to code at that point. So it it changed everything. What did senior citizens do? I'm really curious about that insight because a lot of, well, I mean, I've been, I, I've never taught people or even spoken most, well, I should, this is hilarious. So uh, now I'm an old person. I've crossed 50. I'm certainly technically an old person, but I'm like, I've never worked with old people. Like, oh no, wait a minute. What happened? Um, but I spent a lot of time with kind of a cohort, like people younger than I am or around my age out through the, you know, kind of the, I don't know, the Mac revolution, then the web revolution, then the mobile revolution. And 
coming up with that cohort, I don't think I got these insights. So what do you learn from watching people, older folks, uh, back in, in the late nineties when all this was especially fresh, um, yeah. interact with it? You know, it, it teaches you a sensitivity to just little, like little things that we may take for granted if, if it's not something we experience on the day to day, the stuff that we refer to as accessibility, being accessible. And, but, you know, with senior citizens in particular, um, motor skills, you know, the shakes, you might have the shakes, um, but just intuitiveness too, like watching them try to figure out what a drop down menu was, what, you know, it's like, it says, you know, it says choose one. But there's no nothing under it, you know, it, like it seems so obvious to us. And now we've been doing it for how long? But and, you know, senior citizens get it now, um, by and large. But at that time, it was really important because I was I was in my early 20s and watching watching that made me aware of it, you know, and I think an awareness, um, especially early on where I was just kind of finding my own feet as a designer and a developer. Um, it, it really just, it really struck deeply with me. I was like, I have to think about those things. I have to think about when I design a thing, who's going to be using this and how can I make this easier for them? Um, we watched not only senior citizens, but folks who didn't have the ability to use their arms. So they're using either their feet or a pencil to type things in and to scroll through forms. And, and try to fill out just a basic form on a website was, it was, it was painful and tragic to watch. And it, it, you know, it was just the simplest web form, you know, and, and it's come a long way since then, but we still don't see perfection, you know? Well, and some people might've looked at that. This is where the empathy comes in the personal empathy. Some people might've been through that experience and said, man, those people really don't know what they're doing as opposed uh, to, oh my uh, God. The worst, the Gee, worst, right? <laughs> there's a Donald Norman story, in fact. I forget which one of his books it's in, in which, uh, if I'm remembering the detail right, he visits someplace that's implemented a word processor on, you know, screen-based technology micro or mini computers or, or something. And the uh, you know, secretaries at the time or the typing pool or whatever it is, they keep having problems or there's, you know, he's, he's doing usability testing in the early days. He's asking what goes wrong. And he, then he sits and watches people work and he sees that people keep deleting documents. And there was mm -hmm. some keystroke. This is kind of like the Emacs thing. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's as bad as that, but you're, if you pressed, you know, I don't, let's pretend it was, you know, function three, it deleted the document and function two was save. And once you deleted it, it was gone. And he said, why didn't you tell us about this. And they said, well, that's my fault. <laughs> oh, and that's, use, that's exactly, you know, that is an important point because users blame themselves mm. most of the time, you know, and maybe not as much now, but that was the, that was the, like the response that people had is like, I, I'm just not smart enough to understand this. I can't do it. Um, it's my fault. And it, and that made it even more just sad. Like we, we as designers, as developers, we are responsible for this. You know, we have to do better than this, making people feel like it's their fault and they're just trying to complete your form on your site. No, no, that's unacceptable. And users will always do things that we didn't expect them to. And if you blame them for doing something we didn't anticipate, then <laughs> who, whose fault is that? We keep coming back to, uh, right? yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, so you spend, you know, so I'm, I'm sorry, that's kind of the, I like to start off with that because I, I do, I say you have a superpower because it really shines through all your work and uh, you spent a, 
you know, I divided your life, which is I'm sure full of many twists and turns into three neat pieces, a long period in UX, and then this kind of uh, reinvention going outwards and um, more directly and uh, speaking. And, uh, you know, you are speak frequently at conferences over that period. You're traveling all over the place and spreading this, uh, not a gospel, because the gospel means people have to buy into it. You're spreading insight. Uh, and then this new this new business but i feel like we should talk a little bit about the um the sort of scope of things you know for for instance i know you spent a stint at zappos and they are so famously known externally as uh you know having this fanatical customer service kind of trying to be a nordstrom's online when nordstrom's brand i think i'm a seattleite so i can say this has dimmed a bit uh zappos was trying to be the we are going to make everything right by you what sort of support did you get for that internally or did that play out internally for how you tried to, uh, you know, present this to your customers? You know, I think that that's a, that's a fantastic sort of middle point for me in my career. It wasn't really the middle, but latter middle. Um, but with Zappos, it was interesting because um, Zappos had actually been a client of mine when I, I was a co-owner, a partner in an animation slash interactive shop here in Vegas. Ah. And, uh, so Zappos was a client, and then economy shifted in around 2008. Things got really dry for us at, at our shop. Um, but Zappos was a client who I had we had a contract with for I don't know 11 more months, but we had made the decision to close our our shop. And so in getting ready to close our shop, I approached my direct contacts at Zappos and said, "Hey, we're going to be closing our shop, but I'll personally handle your account. I don't want you to worry. Everything will be fine. Like we we got this still, you know, like even though the company won't be there, you got me. I'm here." And in that conversation, they were like, "You should just come work here." <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. And it really was great for me. I was pregnant <laughs> with my second child. Um, I, you know, in closing a company I had that I was a partner in, I hadn't been paid in like six months mm. or so. So, you know, we were like riding on that. Um, I was in a really, not to get overly descript, but um, a couple months after I had my second child, I also filed for divorce. Mm. So, you know, just some like tension in the relationship there. And then so yeah, like 2009, basically, it was like, um, had my second child, closed a company I love, joined Zappos, went through a divorce, then um, there was a whole bunch of other things, but that was like, <laughs> that was 2009. Wow. So like some things happened, right? Yeah. So like, suddenly I'm a single mom of two little babies, but I, um, I had a three-year-old when Zia was born, and then they're, they're about four years apart. So yeah, they're oh, that's amazing. So, so a paycheck and healthcare sound incredibly good. Sounds and, really good. And the yeah. Las Vegas real estate crash, the economy crashing, particularly hit hard in Las Vegas and a few other places. It sure did. And yeah. I was lucky in that, I mean, I say lucky, like I worked my butt off for this, but I ended up keeping the house in the, um, you know, in that marriage, my mm -hmm. marriage. I, but I used the equity that we had built up in the house to buy out my ex's equity. So, right. yeah. So that, you know, I just gained a bigger debt basically, but, <laughs> but it was my house and I had a place to stay that I could afford, um, you know, and my, my cost of living wasn't going to increase. So at least I knew what I was dealing with. And I had kind of like, yeah, it was, it was rough. I mean, it was rough, but at the same time, like, the idea of Zappos was a very appealing at that at that time. 
so, you know, given all the things. <laughs> so I, I joined Zappos, but like what, what I'll say, um, to kind of bring it back to where we started with that, that conversation is one thing that I learned at Zappos. So the very first thing you do, I had three weeks of my regular job and then you go to famous Zappos training, which is four oh, weeks. Yeah. It's four weeks long. It's 7am to 4pm, five days a week, Monday through Friday. And you have to be there. If you're like 30 seconds late, they lock the door. And there was someone who got locked out at one point and you're not allowed back in. They don't, there's no, if you're late, you're done. You don't get to come back. Your job does not exist anymore. Whoa. During training, it's hardcore and they're very serious about it. But I will tell you this, like there are a lot of things that I don't necessarily click with at Zappos, but their customer service, I will stand behind all day long. Um, they empower their, their employees. Um, you go through the training, you learn what to do, you learn how to handle situations in the best way, but you also have some autonomy in you are you and they trust you. And I really appreciated that. <laughs> so, if I understand the way, I mean, I think they're famously one of the companies that tried holacracy as a business uh, structure, a management model. But and there's a lot I've read lots of pros and cons and people who it drives out of their mind because it doesn't mesh with the kind of <laughs> structure they want to work and other people who are like, this is the best thing I would stay in this whatever company like medium tried it a bunch of other companies have done it. But my understanding of it, like one of the core best points, and I think you're hitting on it is um, not necessarily being an entrepreneur inside a company, but ownership that you got to own stuff and you, you deal with the, the downside that of that too, but you're not micromanaged to death because it's yours and everyone knows it's yours. Is that accurate uh, in play, how it plays out? You know, I, Holacracy came along after my time. So I was at Zappos from, uh, April of 2009 and I left in June, the very end of June of 2011. Mm -hmm. Holacracy came to Zappos later and they moved to the Las Vegas downtown. So I was there at another time. I was there for the Amazon acquisition. It ah, happened six months after I, I joined. Wow, which that... was <laughs> but it was you didn't need any more disruption in your life. It was totally calm. It was perfect. Right, right. It took me about a year to kind of get my bearings. And then and then uh, another year, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I need to go back to working for myself. <laughs> like, I can't do this anymore. Like, but it was, you know, I don't blame Zappos. Like, they were very good to me while I was there. They did offer to, like, what can we do to get you to stay? You know, they were great. And, and the projects that I got to work on at Zappos, I mean, monumental projects. My first project was the overhaul, the look and feel of the Zappos.com website. Oh, my God. And then <laughs> build a team <laughs> because there was no visual design team at Zappos yeah. when it started. There was a web services team, which did graphics and they did like handbooks and stuff like that. But, um, that was it. There was no web design team. So we built that from the ground up after we did the design overhaul, we worked with an external agency to get the look and feel and the style guide and all that. Um, and then Hired, you know, built out a team. And then my next, my very next project was the first mobile apps at Zappos. So oh my God. Yeah. Holy cow. Um, yeah. I think you're a person after my own heart though, because it sounds like how much of your adult life have you been employed by somebody else? A couple, I don't know. A few, a few I, years? I, I answer that. Like collectively, it was like, so interestingly, I guess throughout, even when I was employed with someone else, most of the time, 
I would go home and build websites. I would design <laughs> and code websites because I couldn't stop. I loved it. I was hungry to learn. I was hungry to create and I would get clients. And so, you know, people are like, Hey, can you build it for like the Las Vegas track team or whatever? Like, um, when I was, I was at UNLV before that and they encouraged actually that you spend time working. If it, if it betters your craft, they have no problem with you doing other external work. Great. Um, so I did that. I taught, um, I taught interface design at UNLV. I taught management information systems at UNLV. Um, so it was like side hustles on top of full-time jobs. Always, always, um, at Zappos was the first time I think I had ever put the brakes on that. Yeah. Cause they wanted this. This is, uh, I mean, this yeah. is traditional, but they wanted everything from you. So even yeah. if, even if they hadn't asked for it, you go home at the end of the day and you don't have, there's not much left in that cup. Right. And you've got family. I, done. Yeah. yeah. And at that point I was, you know, after the training, I have to tell you, so like, this was a funny thing. I never realized how mentally exhausting customer service can be until I went through that four weeks of training. Mm. And the last week of training is 40 hours on the phones. Wow. And so your front lines and you're handling that. And it's so much, and, and I do that for a reason, like everybody from the CEO, you know, of the company to the janitor, everybody goes through that um, that training, the same training. And so you understand what the customer service folks are dealing with. And as a user experience, I was on the user experience team, sixth member of the team of six. <laughs> so, um, for of the very small UX team at Zappos at the time. And, um, you know, so it was interesting to learn and see what they go through and look at the system they were working on. It was like a system Tony had actually been a part of building in the early 2000s and it was like built on Pearl and it was, oh it was amazing that they could function. You know, like we were just like, what? This is insane. You know? I, I have a 20 year old site that runs on Pearl that oh I'm not taking that as an insult. Pearl is the most maddening, wonderful language. And if you learn it early, as you know, it's like, oh, I can do stuff with tech that is so much easier than C or C sharp or anything else out there. It's like, yeah. it's so optimized. So I have a book price comparison site that's been running for 20 years. It still produces some revenue. It's just from commissions from people searching on price uh, comparisons, but it is, it is a, a giant ball of object oriented Pearl. And I'm like, thank God I learned that language, but also, <laughs> oh my God, if I'd started a few years later, I would have been so embarrassed to use it. <laughs> But at the same time, computational power has increased so much. Like with JavaScript, Perl is now almost efficient because I can throw a thousand times as many CPU cycles as it, as it could in 1999. But oh, um, I mean, this is, you know, Facebook was famously PHP. I think it still has a lot of PHP and its infrastructure. Yeah. Some sites were, I think, Ruby. I mean, not that these are bad, but um, this is how people bootstrapped, right? Is you got something running almost as a prototype that went into production. And years later, people are like, all right, we're going to need <laughs> to do some work here to, to make this yeah. scale. Oh my gosh. It's, it's crazy. And you know, the system, I don't know what they're using now, but it, it worked. Yeah. It got the job done. <laughs> it was, but it, yeah, sometimes you're just amazed at what had been, you know, added on mm -hmm. over the years and, and that it worked at all. It was crazy. So this phase, so you have this phase of your life, cause I want to get into your, your current thing, but I thought it'd be useful to talk about kind of where you come from. Uh, so you had, uh, you know, th these, uh, stints running your own business stints working at or or almost exclusively for companies then you hit the wall and we can come back and talk about that you've already talked about some hitting the wall <laughs> in the first pass but uh it went into um you know kind of this outward focus but uh 
you had a new life. You were doing this speaking. I saw, you know, I, I'd pull up a Twitter or your page or something. I'd be like, oh my God, you know, how many places is Jamie speaking at? This is amazing. And, and all these different topics. And I'd hear people like, oh my God, I heard Jamie speak about this. And it's, and I, um, I've never heard you speak, unfortunately live. Uh, but I love there, there are events that are very dull and, and, you know, you go to, and they're, they're telling you stuff you already know. And you're like, well, why did I pay to come to this? And others you go to and people tear your head off. Like the XOXO conference I've gone to a few years of, and I feel like I came out of that each year being like, I don't even know who I am practically. They've just, you know, and, and I feel like that is the vein that you're in. And so you're in the middle of this. Uh, and then, uh, you post a tweet, that seems to have changed your life. Can you tell me about this tweet that you posted? <laughs> yes, I can. So, um, you know, without any backstory, I, on the morning of August 17th, 2016, around 6.30 a.m., I want to say 6.22 <laughs> a.m., I post this tweet. It just says, hey, check out this thing some friends and I made. And it has a link to picturethisclothing.com. And with Twitter, when you post the URL like that, it also populates a, a picture. So it populated the picture from our homepage, which was my daughter Zia holding a piece of paper and wearing a dress that matches it. So, um, you know, it, but that was it. It was as simple as that. It was, hey, check out this thing that some friends and I made. And so what that was is... Um, it was a link to this website. It was a basically just a proof of concept. Um, my boyfriend and I, I guess I'll go back and kind of shed some light on sure. what this is. Um, oops. And, and so, um, okay. So, uh, I don't know. I want to say maybe the end of 2015. Um, my daughter was home winter break. I have two daughters, Sophia and Zia, but this was my youngest Zia. She was, um, almost seven at the time. Mm. And she she drew this picture of this like rainbow blocky dress, and she's like, "Look, mom, like kids do." And I um, I looked at it and I thought, you know, it's winter break. Um, one of my goals in life after burnout <laughs> was to to spend more time, be more present as a mom. I was like, you know, I think I could make that dress. Do you want to make that dress real? And she's like, yeah. So we go to the fabric store and um, I let, you know, we take the pe piece of paper and I let her pick all these fabrics that match the, the drawing. And, you know, she picks like all these spandex, sparkly, shiny fabrics. And we come home, we spend the next three days and 12 hours um, across three days just making this dress that looks like her drawing. And I, I have like 4-H level skills and I own a home sewing machine. So nothing, nothing fancy, <laughs> but, but after, you know, 12 hours and three days, um, three days, yeah, I put this sort of sloppy dress on her and I, um, I just put it on because I was going to finish the hem and the collar and I needed to see if the fit was all right. And I put it on her and she goes, I'm wearing my imagination. Oh my and I was God. just like, oh, <laughs> you know, those moments as a parent that you're just like, oh, that's so awesome. Oh, my God. She loves it. And she doesn't want to take it off and let me finish it. She's just she, it's good enough for her sure. right now. Like it, it's perfect. And um, and she wears it every day, everywhere we go. She wears it for like three months nonstop. I have to peel it off of her body to like <laughs> wash it and make her not be the gross kid. Right. So so she does that. But everywhere oh, we go, man. everywhere we go, people compliment this dress. They're like, oh, my gosh, that dress is amazing. Where did you get it? She's like, I designed it with my mind <laughs> you know, she's just like beside herself. And so like after a few months of this, my boy friend Ken says, you know, you've got something here. You should do something with this. And my, 
immediate reaction is like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not going to sew for a living. This is not what I you know, had in mind. Like I was just making a thing for my kid to have some quality time together. And, um, but he, he you know, so we, we kind of actually ran some numbers on what it would be like to do what I did for Zia's dress, where you're recreating the yeah. actual quite literally. And, you know, we would have had to sell something for like three or $400 an item or whatever. And it's just, no, I was like, no, have you seen what kids draw, what they can come up with? No, <laughs> yeah, no you, way. You'd be flying to Bangladesh all the time. You'd be, yeah, it'd be and just, that yeah. was just oh, not ethically up our alley. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so we just shelved the idea But after a few months, Ken came back and he goes, I got it. I think I got it. You know, he goes, he goes, I think, think what if like he says what if they actually just wore the drawing rather than trying to recreate it and that like is one of those things like this is the statement that gives you goosebumps right I was like now that is interesting and he like he had prepared this conversation already he's like how about like a coloring sheet so he had like a dress outline on a coloring sheet and he's like like kids understand coloring they know what a coloring book is you just give them a simple thing they can print it out at home color on it we make the actual drawing. We don't edit it. We don't alter it. It is what they drew pure and straight up because that's a kid's imagination, you know, and that is the thing that gave me goosebumps. And that is what we said, all right, now we've got something. I've heard this story before and I uh, literally have goosebumps right now. I'm looking at my skin and I have them. It is that powerful. (laughs) Well, I've been there where you have like, this is the exciting part is somebody says that to you or you come up with it yourself. And you, you're saying no, no, no. And then you say yes, because suddenly the future unfurls in front of you, right? You get that, um, you know, there's yeah. this famous story like Nikola Tesla was a genius and a super weirdo, but he apparently, ha- I think it was, he had a dream and woke up and the entire functioning of an alternating current generation plant appeared in his head like it was a blueprint and he just had to write it down. And I'm like, all right, I am not Nikola Tesla, but I've had some ideas that I think feel a little bit like that. And so you even describing this sequence, I'm like, oh, you can sort of feel the future almost with your hands. You know, and it was one of those things that like we were doing other things. So Ken um, is like he's half of the the Narwhal app for Reddit and it's a Reddit reader. Mm -hmm. And um so like that was something he was working on at the time. And and Ken was going through like his own stuff. He had reached a point where physically he was in a wheelchair. Um, he couldn't walk. His joints were seizing oh up. God. We've since come through that. But, you know, he was he was doing he built the Narwhal app with his friend Rick because he couldn't work at a regular job. He couldn't yeah. stand. Um, at a desk or sit at a desk constantly for an eight hour fixed period of time. So he had to come up with something that he could do from bed at home. And, you know, so that was what resulted in the Narwhal app. And while he was doing that, you know, that wasn't constant. Once they got it out there, it was just maintenance and customer service for them. But like, um, you know, but that, that did end up generating some income for him, which is great. Um, he ended up moving in with me and my girls in like early 2016. We'd been dating since I want to say like 2012. So, um, you know, we, we'd kind of been together, but, um, yeah, he moved in with us in 20, early 2016. Um, he was walking <laughs> back then, you know, with a cane oh, that's by then. We found out really it was just chain, cutting gluten and, and like an anti-inflammatory diet and a gluten-free diet yeah, come, yeah. really changed everything. Oh um, so, man, but doctors didn't know, you know, everybody. Anyway, so he's going through <laughs> stuff. 
<laughs> no, I've heard, I've heard this. I've heard similar stories with different. I mean, with, actually, with a lot of them with good outcomes. But yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but no, I'm so I'm so glad he got over. That's amazing. Yeah. So he was going through that stuff, yeah. and we were always working on other things. We're never just working on one thing ever at a time. Like we're we're both kind of that way. And with me, like I I lost my dad in 2012, which really sent me into a whole different mode of thought. I have, I've had several losses in my life. I lost my brother when I was 11. I lost my mom when I was 27. And then 10 years later, I lost my dad. And, and like when I lost my dad, like the thing that I, I often, when I, I talk about this in, in conference talks is, is I thought that when I lost my dad, I would be able to process it the way I had processed loss before mm -hmm. by myself into my work. And in this time, for whatever reason, like I had work that I loved when I lost my mom, nothing proved it more than pouring my work into you know, my love and my pain and my loss into my work. And it made my work better. Um, but this time I tried to do that. And it was like, my work just kept floating away. I would say like a, a little balloon, like I was the string and a helium balloon, like somebody just cut the string and I, I fell to the ground and the little work balloon just drifted off into the sky and I couldn't reconnect. I couldn't tie my little string back to the balloon. It was gone and I, and I couldn't figure it out and I tried to work through it for like six, seven, eight months. And, um, and, and in doing that is how I, I started getting into like the coaching aspects. I started, um, you know, taking the, the empathy aspect of my work, which, you know, what I was talking about designing for engagement and how to, how to use your product as a connective tissue between human beings, how to, like, if you're a, if you care for yourself as a human being, and if companies will care for their teams as human beings and their well-being, your product will be better just by that fact alone. And then the people, the end user will ben reap the benefits of, of that. You're a code talker or I should say a code switcher. I mean, almost, <laughs> almost literally both of those things, like, because you know, you, you can do the, all the technical work, you understand it all, but you're also able to translate empathy into a language that I I think uh, people who are often have their head in the machine, you know, either because by, by personality, by neurology, by um, focus. Uh, so you're trying, I mean, I think this has been, gosh, isn't this a big lesson of the last five years, especially with uh, expansion of AI and concern about um, companies being involved in uh, police actions and war and so forth that programmers particularly, but people, everyone surrounding, I mean, developers get the most attention because they're kind of one of the motive forces, but then all the staff and other people of varying, you know, responsibilities around them too, that uh, bringing empathy into that is like the critical, what do we need to do in the 2010s? It was empathy. Yeah. What do we need to do in the 2020s is execute on the empathy. So your transition, you're wanting to talk, people listen to you because they know you're not speaking from a general standpoint. You're speaking from a standpoint uh, that they understand, I think. I, you know, I, I always hope so. I mean, I, I, I felt like, like when I went, when I joined the, um, I talked about the inter, interactive animation shop that I joined them and then I became a partner. And, and I think that that was, it's sort of a good little microcosm of, of how things kind of tend to play out. Like, I, I feel like I earned the respect of our interactive and animation team because I had been a programmer. I, mm -hmm. I learned to code. I could speak their language. But then also I knew I had to sell. Uh, you know, I had to sell. I had to sell our work. I had to be able to speak to, you know, the 
marketing business, um, the agencies, the advertising agencies, I had to be able to sell what our work to them. You know, they were still in the print world and we were the web and we were the missing piece for them. So they had, you know, the, all the clients, they had all the McDonald's and the Disney and the Procter and Gamble, the big, you know, clients with the deep pockets. And we were just a little shop, but if I knew if I could talk to them and, and I could speak their language and I could also speak my team's language, and bridge the gap that that's how we survived, you know, as a company. And that's how that was, that was it, you know, like learning to speak businesses and designees, I used to call it, and, you know, just being able to speak to, to designers and developers from their level, from where they're at, because I have been there. I've been in it with them. Um, I can go in and, you know, switch some code or, or if they tell me it's going to take eight days and I know I can do it in eight hours, I will do it and show them and say, you can't bullshit me. You know, So um, that helped me. That really helped me along the way. I can give you a beautiful example today. I think of the kind of message that you've brought to people. It just happened this morning. I was setting up an account uh, to pay an international bill, which is very hard, as you know, you've had to do this. <laughs> no, I need to send money to Germany to a bookbinder. I don't know if you've had to do that. And uh, the site I used, uh, Safari will autofill a strong password. And as you know, strong passwords uh, are not what we used to think they were, right? Strong passwords right. can be a bunch of words, it can be long, whatever. So Safari's idea of a strong password is not what a lot of sites have. So you go to many sites, and often a programmer or somebody who's not even in the security team has set an interface. It needs to have at least eight letters. It has to have uh, one of this limited set of punctuation. Uh, it can't be your mother's. But you're like, oh, you know, this crazy list, right? And you'll type, and then it's like, no, that doesn't mean you'll type. And the the experience is bad. The interface is bad. It might try to submit. And the user is like, well, I'm just going to abandon this. I'm not even going to set up this account. And you have that feeling, this site doesn't even care about me. Somebody who doesn't know how other people think is, is doing this. The site I went to this morning, it pre-filled the Safari password or I had it pre-fill it and it said, wow, that's a strong password, exclamation point. And I thought, <laughs> you get it, you get me, hooray. And I just click create and I have a password that couldn't be broken by a hundred supercomputers because legitimately it's that strong. But but also I felt I felt seen, right? And yeah, I feel like yeah. that to me, I was like, I don't usually have those moments of joy as much as we should. And I, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm talking to Jamie because that's the feeling yeah. I think that you are trying to get um, even people who are not on the UX part or even the UI part, people who are underneath all this to get them to understand where they are coming through on this chain so that when it comes out to the person who is actually the user, the person interacting, that they don't um, feel left behind or or insufficient, let's say. Oh my gosh, you know, and you you did make a, a, a it passed my mind as you were describing. It's like you know, it didn't come from someone from UX or from a development team or whatever. Like some like people thought about this and it was considered, and it 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 struck this cord in me that, um, that I often, you know, I try not to rant too much, but, <laughs> but UX, right? Like UX has, at first it was painful to try to breathe, bring the idea of user experience into companies. And then suddenly everybody was willing to adopt it, but it was like, oh, they make wireframes, you know, it's like, <laughs> there's a UX group and they make wireframes and that's what, but I, like what drives me crazy is user experience is not a role. It is a mindset. And mm. there's a misunderstanding there in between, you know, when you see job applications or job uh, posts for UX UI 
And it's like, no, 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 no. Those are two very separate things. Right. Like, very, very separate things. Um, but you know, whatever, at least we're making progress, I guess. Like I got to not get hung up on that. I, I was hung up on it for a while, which, which is actually how I ended up talking about like designing for engagement and, oh, and, yeah. you know, really, I, I, I started on this sort of tirade um, of like frustration. It's like, don't they understand? It's not a role. It is a mindset. And I was, I'm going to do a talk where I teach people this. And then I realized like, well, if I'm frustrated, like across all of these experiences I've had in my life, like I was constantly frustrated with this or that. And then I was like, whoa, you know, it just hit me. I'm the common denominator in all these <laughs> equations. Maybe I need to look inside first. Maybe I need wow. to look at what I can control. And that shifted everything into like the coaching and to it, it made my work better in a sort of a you know you said level up which I love gaming term <laughs> um, I'm a big retro arcader um <laughs> so I had uh, you know to me that was a level up in how I um I thought about words and I, I you know words are so important the words we use and I have I've learned the hard way a lot I'm not always the best with words um I was raised my dad was a, a an ex-marine um he was very terse and very crude. And, um, I lacked the eloquence of corporate dialogue when I graduated <laughs> like college <laughs> and high school. I, I learned the hard way by being very terse and very untactful, um, many times. And, and I'm still not great at it. I'm still constantly trying to improve, but it is an awareness. And I think it starts there. It starts with being willing to look at yourself and change what you can about yourself for the better and and hope to spread that outward that is fantastic <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love it well in learning empathy this is the thing is some people say empathy can't be taught and i don't believe that but i also think there's like uh uh we uh we can evolve and become versions of ourselves that we think are better versions of ourselves yeah. uh and it requires it requires that tough self-reflection um uh, so now we need to do, now we need to draw the circle back around and say, <laughs> but it's true because I think this is it, you know, this is the, you're, you have a great origin story because all of this leads up to something that is a, um, you know, I've still got a little goosebumps. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> it's warm here. So it's gotta be the story is, uh, you, this whole set of experiences you bring with you, this, you know, like, uh, 18 years of work and, uh, transition strife and turmoil resolution evolution. And suddenly your boyfriend says, what if we, and you're ready to act on that is the thing is I know it's yeah. a, it's a wild idea, but I, I think I know how you work. And so my suspicion is you're like, well, let, is there anything like this out there? Is anyone doing anything like this out there? Is there the technology to make it happen? So how did you evaluate that, you know, this goosebumpy idea yeah. You've got the chops. You've got a programmer in-house. You're a programmer. You know how to talk to people. It's a great idea. What do you do to move off that tweet and <laughs> off that, you know, hey, what if into well, it? it? Yeah. So this was the, before the tweet ever happened, right? It was about, it took us about 10 months from the time mm -hmm. we said, we, you know, from the time that Ken said, I think I've got it. And me saying, okay, oh yeah, I'm on board. <laughs> it, it was about a 10 month period of time. And that was, you know, us having basically our day jobs, which, you know, I was doing coaching pretty full time at mm -hmm. this point um, with various clients. And then he was doing Narwhal and 
uh, we brought in uh, two other folks to help us. So like once we had the idea, so we did a lot of R&D, what's out there, what exists. We didn't see anything at the time. About two months into our process, we're, we were uh, avid Shark Tank watchers, which is yeah. very inspiring, right? Um, but we had seen something called budsies.com and we were like, oh no, it's our idea. But it was kind of, it was not our idea. Like they take kids' drawings and they literally translate them into stuffed animals. So they oh, have a yeah. feature. And Budsies is very cool. But even even when we watched that, we were like, that's exactly what we ran into. They must be, you know, to make this viable. And I, I have nothing negative or condemning to say about them at all. They make right. great products. I've seen them. Um, but it does look like they outsource overseas. You know, it's the only way to make that a viable uh, sure. business. So and that's fine. It's just not the path we wanted for us. One of the other people I've had on the show a couple times uh, is uh, Jesse Janae from uh, Lumi. And yeah. she was on Shark Tank. And being <laughs> on Shark Tank is what convinced her to totally change her business. Because yeah. they actually gave her good advice, which was, I don't know, this is a really interesting product, but can it scale? And she's like, hey, Maybe it can and completely changed what her, she and her partner's company are doing. So uh, Shark Tank is a very, it's, I always thought of it as a, um, you know, it's an entertainment program, obviously, and businesses do come out of it, but I never thought of it as a, a figure ground thing where it actually tells people, gives you good ideas about what not to do in actually a positive way. Well, and I really think there's a, a great foundation of education there in um, just the simple comments sometimes is like, you know, did you think of this? Did you think of that? But but also as a source of inspiration, mm. look at this. This is an everyday person that is they had an idea and they brought it to life like that's it. And, you know, like that's everything. Like we all have ideas. What the separator is bringing it to life. Yeah. Right. Like that's the that's the close. You've got to close. Always be closing. <laughs> <laughs> always be closing. Um, but yeah, like there is there's something there to that. And, you know, I've started I, I think one of my talks um, around the 2000, maybe 15 era of I, it was a talk called No Excuses, where I talk about getting out of my own way. It had, I had to sort of build a practice around getting out of my own way because I was my biggest obstacle in doing what I wanted to do in life, like you know, achieving greater things or, or accomplishing bigger things. And I realized that I was the thing stopping me, not, not so-and-so at work and not that I can't afford it, not because I don't have time. Those were excuses. And they were real. They were real circumstances I was in, but I had to figure out how to get out of my own way and work through those things. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so that was like, I, it became a practice for me to do that. But in this talk, um, I, I, I talk about that. I talk about how, how I <laughs> sort of made a practice of getting out of my own way. So from the no excuses talk, this is what you put into action is what it feels like because you were, you know, so you say you spent 10 months researching this, yeah. figuring this out, didn't find a comparable business, but there, you know, there's still obviously this big execution exactly. leap. And you, you know, you're in Las <laughs> Vegas where any, anything can be made and bought in Las Vegas, right? There's still a big manufacturing uh, community in Las Vegas, which I think people don't realize. There's all the stuff around the periphery. Um, you know, they, everyone focuses on the gambling part, yeah. the gaming part, uh, but everything else. And you're also an essential point in terms of like reaching, uh, shipping, driving, whatever. So like anything that could be reached in the United States, you're able to get from there. So how do you move forward from this is feasible into let's, let's make something happen? Yeah. Okay. So, and that's an excellent question. And you bring up so many 
so many important points because even with, you know, all the things available in Vegas, as a, a person who was born in Vegas, I probably know the least about Vegas. Like mm. I li- I'm a cave dweller, basically. I live in my home. <laughs> That's why I don't get out much. Um, and I'm far, far, far from all the, you know, the hangover Vegas. But um but I didn't realize manufacturing happened here, to be honest, at the time. So the first thing we did is we figured out, you know, Ken and I, um, we worked together on what we were like, okay, what we've done our R&D, we've got to figure out prototypes and how to make, you know, make this work. We don't know anything about making patterns for clothes. We did a lot of research. We, we did a lot of research. Um, we knew we needed a website to make the, you know, the sales. So neither of us felt like making a website. Honestly, I hadn't designed since like 2008 hands on like that. While we both have the capability, we didn't want to do it for this. Mm -hmm. We had other stuff going on. So we, uh, reached out to a friend of ours who we'd worked with at Zappos. He was a designer at Zappos, but had moved on to running his own company called Menno Design. And his name is Ignazio Lacitignola. He is Italian. And um, he was the first designer I hired at Zappos, actually. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Um, And so we've remained great friends. And we just threw it out there. We were like, hey, Iggy, we call him Iggy. His name's Ignazio, though. But um, we're like, hey, Iggy, we have this idea. We want to build a thing. Would you be interested in, you know, making the website for it in exchange for equity, which (laughs) I have been asked that so many times. We're usually just roll your eyes, which is what we expected. But he was like, wow, I love this idea. I would love to help you just know that it has to happen outside my contract, you know, my paid work, (laughs) which we totally understood. And um, we were like, cool. So he's in. um, And then we called our friend Stefan, who we had worked with um, at Black Pixel. And I say we, Ken and I, have worked together since 2008 also. So we've known each other for a while. Um, Our work relationship um, was strong for quite a while. Um, and then it grew into more <laughs> around 2012. So it's like, um, but yeah, so like we worked together at Zappos, um, we worked together at Black Pixel, and then he went um, off and did his own thing with Narwhal. But we we had worked with this guy Stefan. Um, he was the biz dev guy over at Black Pixel, and we remained great friends with him. Um, and he had moved on to become a partner in a cake bakery. Oh my. Yeah, Honeycrumb, it's based there in Seattle, actually. Really, really beautiful, stunning cakes. And um, so he was doing that with his wife, Carla, and we reached out. We were like, Stefan is a man who is able to make phone calls. So as funny as it is that I do a lot of public speaking and podcasts, I am terrible at making phone calls. I hate it. It's terrifying for me. Um I don't like picking up the phone and calling people. I don't know. I just don't like it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that's a natural transition. That the less we've had to do it, the worse we all get at it. Like yes. the, this conversation is the closest thing to a phone call I typically do these days. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I don't mind these, and I, I feel like I know you, even though I don't know if I've met you in person. <laughs> it's like, but we've talked several times, and you know. Anyway, so the phone call, Stefan. We need somebody who could figure out like some of the logistics for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and he like found places all over the world that could do the manufacturing. And we narrowed it down to one in North Carolina and one here in Vegas. And oh my gosh. Um, the guy in North Carolina didn't want to do one-offs. We needed one-offs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the, like, these are one of a kind items, rarely are going to be doing two of the same kind. The guy in North Carolina didn't do that. And the guy in Vegas was just like, sure, bring it on. <laughs> it was like, so it, and it turned out being 15 minutes from our house, a 15 minute drive to the guy here in Vegas who, so in, and when I say what, what he was doing is he does sportswear, but he was willing to make our prototypes for us. Oh, I and see. then 
Um, so our prototypes is basically sublimation printing um, with a pattern that we developed basically on our own based off a shape that we want to do, a very simple dress shape. And um, so we had this guy, Jeff, run some prototypes for us. They were fantastic. And then we had to figure out how to turn that into, you know, the website that they could print off the picture, design it any way they want, upload a smartphone photo back on our website, and then we would send it back ready to wear. And that's what it became basically. But um, Jeff did all our prototypes. And then he said, well, whenever you launch it, let me know. I'm happy to do the fulfillment for you. And he does all of the, you know, he did. Um, we've taken it over since then. But when we started, it was a local Las Vegas manufacturer. Um, and he does, we would send him the files ready to print. So everything had been prepared. He'd print the files to paper, do the sublimation to fabric, um, and then cut and sew every piece. And we would go pick up boxes of the completed garments. So, so we had our fulfillment, our manufacturing, everything ready to go. Um, and he said he could handle whatever volume we could throw at him. Um, I don't think he thought that it would be too big <laughs> anyway. So, you know, and he handles like really large scale, like sporting stuff. So, um, he's set up to do a lot, a lot of volume. I wanted a sidebar on dye sublimation because I love this technology and, um, it's relatively new. I'm kind of a, I'm a student or historian of printing. Uh, it's only, I had to look it up cause it's, it's, um, it's so cool. It's only about uh, 60 years old now. Yeah. Because it requires all this kind of industry and technology that exists, but it's still um, pre-digital and it's always been like a fabric uh, technology um, and then later was applied to photographic purposes. But the funny thing is I was working for an arm of Kodak uh, in a teaching facility on the coast of Maine, the beautiful coast of Maine, and Kodak was making the first, I think the first commercial dye sublimation printers. And the joke was the units we got were designed to be rack mounted into tanks because Kodak yeah. had developed these first for the military to be able to print continuous tone, high resolution images in the field. And then they're like, oh, this is a commercial or a consumer product, not consumer, sorry, like industrial product too. And eventually like the next model didn't have the weird rack mounting metal front that was like smooth yeah. and rounded and whatever. But like, I, I've always thought it's the most beautiful uh, thing because it lets you take all this rich tonality and transfer it to something else like a photograph or a photographic paper um, yeah. or or to fabric. And yeah. I think it demonstrates though, one of these great aspects I keep, uh, I like to find the friction that's been removed that lets someone like you produce something like this. And it's like dye sublimation is the only technology that would have allowed you to get this kind of transfer, right? Because you yes. can't, you'd have to have gone overseas in this $300 dresses to create duplicates, right? Um, right. But this technology, it's not, it's, it's now easy, cheap, widely available, digital, and people can use it as a service bureau. Or in this case, he's not exactly a service bureau, but you're sending him a file. And instead of needing this massive industrial base or even your own equipment to start with in like a multi-hundred thousand dollar investment right. 15 years ago, say, your investment is this working relationship in the initial prototype. And I, I think that's incredible too. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's a great, um, that's a great thing is like, for us, we kept our, our expenses. We carried no inventory. Mm, oh, um, wow. You know, that's a really smart thing, right? Like you start a business that has no inventory because it's a proof of concept at this point still, right? Like we were just like, let's build this website. The idea is they print the paper at home, they design it at home, they upload a smartphone photo and we send it back ready to wear. We want to keep it as simple as that. Yeah. But, we, you know, we don't carry inventory because everything is made to order because it is 
printed, then cut, then sewn. Um, and that was with our, you know, manufacturer who's now two doors down from us. But, um, we manufacture all our stuff in house now and I can get to that later. But, um, you know, it was just, it's, it's amazing if we had, had to have the equipment in hand and, you know, the setup that we have now where we make everything ourselves, if we had had to have it, then it would have required, you know, three or $400,000 to start this company. Um, the way that we went about it, we did not have to do that. It, so it, you know, I think we spent maybe three grand total. It's like the one-off quantity thing is like, and this is, you know, it's happened across a lot of industries and I, you know, I've talked to the folks at, um, studio neat where I think part of their success is uh, low volume, uh, production, uh, you know, now they're doing much higher volumes, but initially, uh, it was the ability to know they could have affordable, low volume production of industrial items. And the, uh, you know, they have some, uh, lathe now that's not a very expensive lathe, but it lets them. Uh, test stuff in-house at a way, again, that would have required either a massive outlay or a huge amount of time working with machine shops. And now they got this little device that pushes them so much forward. And I just love the fact that you could start this as an, as an idea, you know, without all that investment in infrastructure, because who knows what's going to work, right? You're like, what exactly. am I, I going to sell my house that I now own you know, right. all, to, to fund an idea that I don't know whether it's up and down. And, and part of the challenge of the internet is, Good ideas become, uh, you know, they can crash, of course, but good ideas can become super oversubscribed, super fast. And I feel like that was one of the challenges you faced was not that this was a cold idea or an idea you had to warm people up on, but this was super heated so quickly. Because I will say I enter the stories. I followed your career. I mean, we've, we've been online <laughs> friends for a long time. I followed your career for a long time. And then at some point you post something a year in a business like, Hey, we've grossed, uh, I think it was over $750,000. The business is going great. This is fantastic. I'm like, wait a minute. I just remember you posting, you're starting this business. Now yeah. you have sales like this. Now it's changed your life. And so I hit you with the one year inflection point. Now we're at three. So yeah. you had to deal with people being jumping up <laughs> and down about this. How did you deal with the excitement and the, like the demand that came through? Man, so learning experience number one. <laughs> like, we've learned so much from this. Okay, so just like kind of a, like a, a little summary. Um, so we launched that morning with that tweet, right? Um, August 17th, 2016, mm -hmm. 622 AM. This tweet, <laughs> by the end of that day, there was a write-up in TechCrunch and our yeah. website crashed. Oh, so <laughs> that was like, oh crap. <laughs> First the website crashed and we were like, we were like, what happened? And we had to figure out what happened. And so we, you know, we we discovered that somebody had written uh, a TechCrunch post on us and we were like, whoa, mm. that was completely unexpected. Um, and then, so that happened. And then Iggy got the website back up and running within a, you know, a very short period of time from us discovering that it was down. And then the next day it was on product hunt. And then the next day it was, um, babble.com, Disney's parenting blog, which oh my is called gosh. Com reached out. They wow. had seen the TechCrunch article. They reached out to do an interview with me. They did an interview. The next day, um, another company called Now This, it's like a news. Oh, yeah, yeah. They reached out to do a Skype interview with me and they made a video. They recorded the interview and then patched together a little thing, um, a little video that, um, and that, it, okay, so all of this is how every day there was something new. Um, it, it, we had launched on a Wednesday. By the following Wednesday, Disney's Babble.com article went live one week from the day we launched. Um, and when that went, live. Then we started seeing Huffington Post, Business Insider, like like every huge news 
ROPs that you can imagine, <laughs> like started posting it. And then we started getting more, you know, um, HLN is that a headline news, um, HLN network, Michaela show morning show in mm-hmm. LA, um, reached out, flew us down to do an interview. And then we, the Harry Connick jr. He has a show called Harry in New York. They flew us out oh to gosh. interview us and Amy Poehler's smart girls, um, flew us back to LA to do a, um, an interview down there. And so just all of these things just kept happening and happening. And that was over the course of like three months, but Meanwhile, at home, um, <laughs> and it's like, oh my god! <laughs> the um, problem of success—it's a—it's yeah, a huge problem. It's a good problem to have, but yeah. So what we were dealing with, uh, you know, on the backside of things was okay. So like for the first five days, there were maybe three orders, which we thought, okay, you know, this is interesting. We're getting all this buzz, but not a lot of orders, and that's exactly why we tested the model first. Right. So we, proof of concept because people do have to, it's a very different e-commerce sort of experience. They have to print a thing, go away and then come back and place the order. And the go away part where they design their dress, um, it was only dresses at the time. It's more than that. Now we do t-shirts and we're about to launch another product soon. But, um, but yeah, so like, you know, it was just dresses. They have to go away, design the thing and then take a picture and bring it back to our website. And we didn't know if people would do that. So we (laughs) we had to test that out and, um, we made it as easy and simple as possible, but we had to see if it would happen. It wasn't until the, um, the, you know, the babble.com article going live definitely gave us a boost. We started to see some bigger numbers, like 10 orders in a day, you know? And when we launched this, we were like, oh, it'd be so cool if we got like one or two a month. That'd mm-hmm. be so awesome. Cause we could just be doing our full-time jobs still. And, um, and you know, and then doing these on the side and that'd be super sweet. Um, cause they're super fun and we love it. And, and then that now this video went live on Facebook and it, it got 3 million views in less than 24 hours. And then the <laughs> next day, we literally had $10,000 in sales. Oh, my God. And we were like, oh, my God, we haven't even shipped a product yet. Like now, like we just proved the concept. Now we got to bust our buns and get some stuff out the door. Cause, and we had to we had indicated uh, about a two week turnaround time initially. Yeah. And we had extend it to 50 days. Uh, we had a 50 to 60 day turnaround. I emailed every customer who had placed an order. I sent out a very heartfelt email that said, here's the situation. <laughs> here's what the turnaround time is. Every single person that responded to me was so kind and so understanding. They were like, you go, you know, like, thank you for letting us know. Thank you for being honest. And, and you know, that it'll be delayed beyond, you know, the two weeks and, and thank you. And, and, and your story too is, I mean, you're working with a, a local small business, which uh, is great. You're a local small business, you know, you've got a great this is so you're not telling you know it's like well you know our chinese supplier wasn't able they had an order for a million that came in front of it's like no the guy who was 15 minutes away from us he has a small shop they can only do so many orders while they're doing the other work they're committed to that's i mean people will i hope get that and they obviously did get that and they did and i think it was just a matter of communicating and being timely and honest with our our communication and you know and we did that as much as possible through the the early weeks there Mm -hmm. and i was I was, you know, with all the media, I was getting about 200 emails a day in my oh inbox. My so I had to get some help immediately. Um, we hired a, a friend of ours who we'd worked with on some freelance social media before, Amy Mash, who was just terrific. And over time, we ended up automating so much of it mm-hmm. that, you know, we didn't have enough work to keep her busy now. But, um, 
but you know, she was, we couldn't have done it without her. And then we had to get tons of help on image processing. So that was, that was a big part. And that's part of our secret sauce that I don't talk in depth about because that is what makes us very different. We have a lot of proprietary stuff that we've created, a lot of trade secret processes that we've created. Um, but if we hadn't had that rush at the beginning, like we did, we wouldn't have been forced to become more efficient in the way that we did. Your other secret sauce is that you and your daughter's uh, model the some of the designs that you make and you particularly are showing off like on a, I, I think it slowed down a little because you probably had a I don't know if it's less marketing <laughs> and more CEOing or the, what the balance is switched but I remember for a long time be like oh my gosh it's a popcorn dress oh my god and then trying the photos and then like I don't know if this is going to work we're going to take a 2d photo of a 3d thing and so yeah. that sequence of stuff of showing you know I think Cy Sperling in the, I'm not just uh, the president, I'm a member of the, the, the uh, <laughs> yeah. fair club for men. I mean, I think it's very effective because then you're uh, front and center putting yourself out there. You're the public face uh, of the company, but you're also showing like, look, this is actually, I can wear this. My kids are wearing yeah. this. Doesn't this look great? And these are things we're just trying and doing as opposed to it has to be perfect. Like you broke down this barrier for your customers of feeling like it had to be a certain kind of thing too. Yeah. Well, and you know, like nothing drives me more crazy. And this, this is probably just me. Like I remember my, my oldest daughter, Sophia, when she was in kindergarten and my very first parent teacher conference, um, one of the items was about her artwork that she needed to learn how to ground the house and have the people standing on the ground. Like, like this was some sort of developmental <laughs> milestone for the school and it like crushed my soul. I'm not even kidding. Oh, I was like, yeah. no, her artwork is amazing exactly as it is at age five. It is exactly her heart. It is whatever, you know? And, and so when I get, we hear it a lot, it was like, oh, when they're old enough to draw, we'll do that. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. It's so much more than drawing. First of all, it's so much more than drawing. But second of all, when a kid is two years old and they're scribbling their little hearts out, it means every bit as much to them at two or three as it will when they're 10 or 12 and, and if not more. But your um, process is fantastic because with your photographic processing secret sauce, the images that come <laughs> out and then the vibrancy of dye sublimation and then making it, and it's big. So even drawings would be like, if you looked at it, if it was on someone's refrigerator, you'd say, well, that's cute. That's a great expression, whatever. And the parent and his heart is, is, is bleeding because they love it so much. But on a dress, it looks fabulous like everything looks good bigger and in vivid i think is the it, secret <laughs> so amazing to me it just looks amazing and i love the purity of their imagination i don't want it i love that we don't edit it you know we get mm -hmm. that sometimes we'll get that comment you know with the internet when you're out there you get you get all the hate tell right along with the love and uh, you know some of the first things that we saw was um you hate boys, you're sexist. And because we had launched with just dresses, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't launch with the t-shirts because developing t-shirts for us through our process, yeah, would yeah. Take in. it took us six months to get those developed. And we had started the process. We saw it as a, an obstacle that would cost more in both time and money. So we thought, let's just test the model with the, you know, let's test the concept with the dresses because we can do that now. We can do it inexpensively. We can do it, you know, right. So we did. And, um, once we did that, um, and then it went viral and it was like, Oh, okay. Pro you know, concept proven. Now we need to launch the t-shirts. Well, um, 
you know, I think if we launched with t-shirts, we might've buried ourselves. We might not have been able to keep up to be honest. And so I'm glad that we didn't, I'm glad that we focused. <laughs> we started where we started. Um, as many people that like to tell us we were idiots for starting that way. I think you're wrong. But, you know, so it's, it's all right. Everybody can have their own opinions. We did the thing. We brought it to life. We did. We're doing it. We're still going. And, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, maybe we were right. Maybe we were wrong. But we seem to be doing all right one way or the other. You know, one of the first interviews I did in this show in 2012 was with uh, Chris Anderson, former editor-in-chief of Wired, who had started um, uh, 3D Robotics. And I, I forget where it's at now. They hit a few years ago, Chinese competition, I think buried them. It's, it's, it's a rough thing, but I think they had a good, I want to say several years. And they also spread the notion of a uh, drone of personally owned and designed drones and hobbies. They did a lot of great work. So I, I want to preface that because I don't want to sound like, Oh, they were a failure because X like, no, this, they had a great run and they did a lot to, uh, to spread this kind of this area of creativity and, and DIY. But one thing Chris said is as they scaled, cause they went from like no investment somehow making drones, they're really kind of a, here's how you might make drones discussion board. Well, maybe we'll supply some parts. Well, maybe we'll supply some kits. Well, maybe we'll start making them. And it just wow. went up and up and up and investment came in at some point, but they really pulled that. But the thing that always struck me and uh, Max Temkin at uh, Cards Against Humanity told a similar story. I've heard this from other people, but them in particular is the scale. They go from like, well, we started with this, so we had to outsource it. We had to do piecework and hire somebody. Then it got bigger and we brought it in-house and we bought a machine. Then it got bigger and we had to hire an entire firm for like a week. <laughs> then it got bigger and we brought it in-house. We got a 10,000 square. Then it got bigger and it's like a children's story. And wow. I know you've gone through aspects of that because your scale, you know, it's exponential at first. It tapers off. So you have a sense of of growth as you add products and, and work gets out. But so how have you managed those, the kind of children's book of scaling problems as things get bigger and bigger and things start to stack up? Oh man. Well, it's like, it's like every, uh, I'll just, I mean, if we call each year a chapter basically, and you know, we started toward the end of, uh, 2016, but our first obstacle was just getting everything under control, getting our processes sort of locked down, refining things and simplifying and automating as much as we could. And then our next, um, you know, our 2017 challenges by the end of 2017, what we saw as our biggest challenges was turnaround time with our current manufacturer. Oh, we yeah. were a lower priority for him, which is, he's still wonderful. I'm not saying anything negative about him because I love him. Um, but you know, turnaround time and price point, we couldn't really offer sales and stuff or discounts because our price, we were butted right up against just, that's a rookie mistake, I guess, you know, something, but our price point, it felt right to us. Um, we still get a lot of complaints about it being too expensive, but I just don't think it is. Um, I don't know yeah. how you could be lower. I mean, I mean, in, especially people want stuff that's manufactured in the U S you know, it, if you, if you want that and you want a shorter turnaround time, the only way to do it is to charge the right price. And yep. what you're charging is obviously the right price. It's like, the, it's the, the lowest we can go. And like, you know, I mean, especially outsourcing our manufacturing, even mm -hmm. locally, but it's, it was always us made. It's still us made, but, um, okay. So like there was that. And then we had a lot of technology issues. We had built it on WordPress. We'd used a lot of plugins, um, for, customization purposes and stuff to really make it exactly what we wanted. Um, but every time one plugin would get updated, it would break everything else. Yeah. It was just a constant nightmare. And then, um, we did just like quite a few other things. So basically in 2018, we made the decision to, um, use all the capital earned. And just to, like, I, I think at that point when, by the time we hit 18 months, 
Um, by the time we were 18 months old, we had reached 1.2 million in sales. So that was a, a great point for us to just kind of assess everything and say, okay, where do we want to do? Do we want to close up shop and do something else? <laughs> do we want to keep going? You know, and you know so- there's, there's a great, the onion headline from several years ago was, uh, Dell reaches goals, shuts down. <laughs> yeah, right. Like we, we seriously, like we seriously talked about it because it was never intended to be like our primary focus. Yeah, but yeah. It, we, we did love it, you know. And Ken and I, like, we call this this is our idea baby. We don't have kids together. We have cats together, and we have this idea baby. <laughs> and so we're just trying to raise this idea baby together. And um, and I, I got to tell you, I, I couldn't love working with somebody more than I love, love working with Ken and Ignacio. And Stefan isn't an active, um, you know, day to day member. He's running his bakery with his wife, but he will always be a part of, of the reason it started. And, you know, and Ignacio does less of an active day-to-day role, but he's still here. Um, and so, yeah, it's Ken and I running, running things. And then we have Luba and Wilson. So we're basically a team of, uh, oh, and Pavel, um, Pavel was another developer we worked with at Zappos as well. He's a mm-hmm. Vegas native and, um, he's our developer. And so we built all of our software. So those three things that I was talking about, software obstacles, turnaround time, price point, we spent 2018 working on those. And by the time we started 2019, we had, um, it was by November, we had a fully functioning manufacturing shop up and running. So we were able to take on our holiday season on our own without the help of our trustee, um, Previous manufacturer, Jeff, who is there if we ever have, you know, if we need backup or anything breaks, Jeff's there and he's, um, he's been so delightful. Ken helps him with software stuff. He helps us with technical stuff. Um, cause we've had to learn everything. We didn't know anything about this. We've learned how to use our printer, how to use our, uh, sublimation, uh, machine. We've learned how to cut, how to sew. Um, and then we have a sewer who's professional, who is awesome. That's Wilson. Um, Luba helps Ken with image processing and then, um, yeah, well, it's us and I, you know, Wilson and I do all the packing and shipping. I do all the customer service, um, and social media and, um, we're a tiny shop, but yeah, it's, it's, so that's, that's it. And then our new, um, t- our new obstacle for 2019 has been trying to get new products out now that yeah, we've got yeah. kind of a solid foundation in our software. We've got a solid foundation in our facility, our manufacturing. Uh, we were able to drop our, our cost per product, which means we created an affiliate program. So now we can offer discounts more regularly. Um, you know, we offer up to 20% off most of the time. Our affiliate program is 10% off and 10% commission for any, you know, anybody who uses their code or whatever. And, um, so yeah, we have a pretty sweet affiliate program. It is not a multi-level marketing scheme in any way. <laughs> Want to make that clear because I get a lot of mom groups that are like, "Is this one of those like you know?" That's I'm like, straight no. off the top. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's this just, is this is how my book price uh, comparison service. 100 percent of the revenue I make from it is affiliate revenue from just you know people. Yeah. It's a book someone wanted to buy. They find the price and they buy it. So I've uh, I've been a believer of affiliate. You know these these straightforward affiliate programs are fantastic, and especially the way you're you're doing it that you're giving something to the affiliate and their purchasers at the same time as they get a you know a cash uh, yeah. amount like that's yep. that's the great thing everybody wins and and it is their choice cash or store credit like you can choose cash we don't we're not like mm-hmm. oh it has to be store credit i would never do that <laughs> like that was a big thing but then also yeah they can use their own code too cuz we get a lot of folks oh, who that's think- great 
so they can use their own code. There's no limit on it. There's no t- you know expiration to it. There's no max. Like you you get 10% off your cart, and then you'll get in 30 days you get that 10% commission via cash or store credit, whatever your choice is. So that's that's yeah. We got to set that up. That happened. We launched that earlier this year, and then new products. We're um, really close to launching a new product, and then we actually just announced um, two days ago a partnership with. The internet famous Sam Barsky. He is a knitter. He's an internet sensation who knits. Sam Barsky. I know who Sam Barsky is. Yeah. He He is a phenomenal human being. And um, we had met him in 2017. He came through Vegas. And we got to, we took him and his wife to the Hoover Dam so he could get his Hoover Dam sweater photo shot. Oh, man. Um, It's so great. We, we, you know, he was learned about what we did. We showed him how excited. And, uh, earlier this year he was looking for, he's, he's had a lot of offers of people who want to do his t-shirts, t-shirt versions of his oh, sweater. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we, we got the deal. That's <laughs> fantastic for people. You got it folks. If you're listening to this and don't know Sam Barsky, you got to look up Sam Barsky. I didn't know him by name, but, um, he and I look a lot alike. Uh, he has more hair than I do, but it's, he does these amazing. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to it to begin with, but um, he does these amazing uh, uh, sweater designs. He knits himself and um, he's got a reputation because he's, he's like uh, apparently, as you say, like the nicest guy and, and, and low key, but he does this amazing work and he travels and it's kind of like, it's almost like a clown in the sense of like, um, he has an integrity, in a sense, like the wrong metaphor, but he has integrity to his work and he yes. brings this clear joy to it and he spreads joy wherever he goes. It's really like um, an amazing thing, like being a performer, but with his sweaters. Yeah. And because he, what he does is he knits a thing, right? Like, like uh, Stonehenge, he knits the scene of Stonehenge and then he goes to that place and has it takes his photo like a selfie in front of Stonehenge wearing his Stonehenge sweater. So like the Hoover Dam, he did the Hoover Dam sweater and had his selfie in front of the Hoover Dam. And sometimes it's with um, llamas or, you know, the alpacas. Um, He's done, I mean, like he's done over 140 sweaters at this point. So we just had him in the shop earlier this week. We photographed front, back, side, side of 40 sweaters. That's all we could fit in. That's all he could fit in his suitcase for this trip. But um, so it's going to take us a couple months to get that up and running as a website that where you can buy and it'll be exclusively branded under his name, Sam Barsky. So you will access them, but it's powered by Picture This, which is a concept we've been working on for If you a go while. to his site right now, if you go to sambarski.com, it says, coming soon, t-shirts, dresses, and yeah. doll clothes. That's you guys. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. What a so, capper. Yeah. Well, right? so, so, how do, so how do you sum up? <laughs> how do you sum up your life? No, but this is, I think, um, uh, what you're doing seems so emblematic of like so many changes in uh in the the economy and manufacturing and this has been you know this is the reason i did this show in the first place and and uh got help bringing it back on the virtual air it's that i feel like there's so many stories in which um like you have had a very good success and you had all the skills necessary to figure out how to get to this point um and i don't think you have to be as big a scale of business to take advantage of the principles that you did but i think it's so fantastic that it's um that you're able to start a wordpress you could start with one off production that yeah. you could start in this way that let you scale without uh you know having to go out and say we need a million dollar angel funding round to get you know to even get off the ground we need a friends and family you know all these things that can come later you'm sure you know i, I don't I won't ask you if you haven't talked <laughs> you about your business ask, things but, but yeah no you can ask we've had zero outside investment 
um, Ken and I have not taken pay for a year mm-hmm. so that we could invest back in, but we were prepared financially to do that. Um, and by that, that we have other sources of income because we do multiple things at once. <laughs> so, so, you <laughs> know, many like hats that, of Jamie and Ken. Yeah. And so we, we were both, we're both, um, you know, financially very responsible and we live uh, pretty modestly, I think, in the scheme of things. I do have, a, like, I recently got a fancy car. I, in my mind, it's a fancy car. It's a Model 3 Tesla. Um, and I, I, I death-proofed it. I don't know if you, that will mean anything to you. but So that's, like, the fanciest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but, yeah. Man. So that's the fanciest I've ever gotten. Um, but I worked hard for that. that that's, <laughs> so, that's some good middle-class fans in right now. That's that's. <laughs> That's, that's the fanciest I've ever got. We, we bought a Subaru a number of years ago. We felt pretty fancy by our standards also. Yeah, uh, yeah. And again, no one's going to blame you for taking investment because there's a point at which you may decide we want to grow uh, X times faster or some large brands. I mean, this is kind of the Lego story in a weird way is that Lego was a failing company. You know, I'm sure you know the story. It was uh, on the way to bankruptcy, practically. They got a new outside manager or CEO for the first time, and he started partnering with all the uh, you know, movie brands, entertainment brands. And while people have different feelings about what Lego has become, it would likely have been gone or owned by some kind of weird private equity firm that would be you know, doing its own thing, right? So yeah. Lego at its core has survived and thrived by figuring out what the next thing was. And that required these, you know, partnerships that they never would have had before. And so it may be that you get some brands or you say, we really want to start doing <laughs> more. There's Sambarsky, but there's some other Sambarskis of the world that are bigger or different. Or, um, uh, you know, there's a letterpress printer I know of all things. One of the most famous current letterpress printer designers, Brad Vetter. And maybe, maybe there's a, you know, there's a million people like that. So maybe there'll be a point where you say, uh, we need to be 10 times bigger. We need to buy five new $200,000 machines, <laughs> you know, and that, could, uh, and that, that's not, or is that not, or you actively don't want that to happen? Right now we actively don't want to get too much mm. bigger. We would like to get slightly bigger um, for, for now, but you know, this is one of those things that we, we kind of just, we feel our way through it. You know, we feel how we're doing, um, we feel how the company's doing and we make decisions based on how we feel about it. Are we still having fun? Do we still love it? Do I still love, like I, I do live streams of the hand cutting process as much as I can because I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the process. And when I do it, I ask myself, like, do I still love it? Do I still love seeing every single piece that comes through here? I, I sure as shit do. <laughs> you know, like, I do. I love every single one of them. And, and if I ever reach a point where I don't feel that way, then it's time to think about things, you know, maybe have a different conversation. But right now we love where it's at. We love the growth. There's so much room for growth in where we're at right now that until we get that locked down, I I don't even know if something bigger will happen. But, you know, we just kind of write it. We take it as it comes. We make the best decisions we can about it. But our, our core is about loving what we do, loving who we work with, and and having some fun along the way you know we we still like to go to disneyland once in a while we like to go out for dinner once in a while we do those things you know we we'd like to make sure we have a a, a moderately balanced life i mean like we work a lot yes but we also try to balance it out a little we try to have a, a life did you expect with your background spending so many years doing things that were so strictly digital that you would wind <laughs> up in such an intensively atomic business 
Never. I never in a million years would have seen myself making clothing for one, making clothing myself with my own hands for another. Never. When I cut these out with like this thing that looks like a pizza roller, when I cut these things out by hand, I I laugh sometimes. I'm just (laughs) like, I would have never seen this, not even, you know, three years ago. Um, We're coming up on, you know, our third anniversary. here just this month it's august 1st today um we're coming up on the 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 17th will be our three-year mark so i would have never seen this even even when we just had this as a concept a proof of concept i would have never seen this as my full-time gig i I feel like you're not alone too because i talked to a lot of people who spent i mean you know i'm one of them too as i came from a print and design background but watched it uh transition digitally and by i don't know the late 19 well, gosh, I mean, I started a web company in 93, so I'm one to talk, but I was still doing uh, print books and writing for print publications. But by 2000, almost everything I've done from like 2000 to 2017 was digital. And I was kind of tired of it, even though it's much like my work. And then suddenly it's like, well, I got this artisan residency. I did letterpress printing. I'm doing this you know, physical project now, collecting old artifacts. I've got all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, you know, the digital is great. It's where I make my living. It's where I kind of live at some level. But boy, isn't it great to touch stuff and make things? And yes, everyone's crying it. out for this. And, you know, and, and that brings up a good point, too, is like uh, people because I come from the tech world and people go, oh, well, you left you left tech. Maybe there's nothing relevant oh. <laughs> for you, to, you to talk about here. And I'm like, no, without technology, our company does not exist. Oh, my God, you didn't leave tech. That's a, but that's <laughs> fascinating. People conceptualize that way because you're making yeah. a physical thing. And I'm like, this is what's I mean, what I think is personally exciting, too, is that um, you can work at this scale and you were able to start at that kind of one off scale. But we know perfectly well that while there are physical limits to how some kinds of things are made, there is a coming revolution. Like the 2D cutters, 3D printers, uh, mm-hmm. even dye sublimation methods I know have gotten cheaper and improved. Like there is still a revolution that people think has already kind of been well underway, but the future of manufacture in the home of like things, hobbyist and small business level manufacture, I think we are still just on the verge uh, of that. Yes, I think you're so right. And I do think that maybe it's folks like us who have no background in it, who don't know Mm. the way it's always worked. Um, You know, us having no background in it has allowed us the freedom to think about it differently, to approach it in a different way and simplify some things that honestly, that, that we were told by pattern makers and stuff that, oh, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Well, we made it work. So, <laughs> so that's okay. That's great. Keep throwing that out right. there. And, <laughs> and the guy who you were contracting to, uh, you know, he had his own line of business, his own method. Yep. He wasn't a programmer. And, and so I mean, it's it's so delightful. You can still work with him. He's still happy about it. But he obviously had a a, a business of his own direction. It's clearly thriving because you didn't suddenly become 90% of his business. Uh, so he right. didn't have to worry about his future. You know, you can acquire him or if you go away, what happens? So he has his own yeah. thing. But like you brought software to the mix, software and software yeah. intelligence and that beautiful, we tie it all up, the front end. The thing is, I go to your site. You go to picturethisclothing.com so I can make sure and plug the actual site. <laughs> is uh, and I, uh, it's all it's it's human beings. It's human beings. It's not like you can do this thing and blah blah blah. It's pictures of people everywhere. The process is simple. I mean, I said it in the intro because it really is. You draw something or take a picture of it, and you get a dress or a T-shirt. It's really, I mean. From a user standpoint, what could be easier? And the actual process isn't much harder than that. And then you guys took on the iceberg behind the scenes to make it be that easy to customers. So I think you've directly, obviously, applied 
your whole career's worth of work on the analog side as well as the digital. Well, and you know, like to put something that I'm most proud of that isn't the most obvious thing about Picture This Clothing. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but it's like the closing the loop on an, like I can start an idea um, and, you know, finishing it is the hard part. Like we all have ideas, we all start things, but it's finishing it that separates you from everybody else, right? And so picture this clothing in 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 a way is sort of a, a tiny, it encapsulates that process for children, right? Like I, I feel like we can teach our kids how to become makers, not just have ideas, but complete the process. They They have an idea in their head, they put it out on this paper, and then they send it away and it becomes real. It comes back as a physical thing they can hold and it blows their mind. Like pe people send us that, those reaction videos of the kid going, oh my gosh, like this is the thing I put on paper. This is, this is the, the thing with my patterns on it. You know, we have a couple of just, that's just so cute. Um, but there's a, a connection that happens there. It's something that I try to teach my kids um, you know, my daughters, my girls, I want them to be able to contribute to the world. I want them to be able to own their time and control their time and how they, th what their idea of success is. But part of that is, is that process is like, don't just have an idea, bring it to life, make it happen, do the work. And I feel like picture this clothing teaches that process in a really sort of playful and light and fun sort of way. But, um, but it's there, it's all there. It's, it's having an idea, it's putting it on paper and it's bringing it to life. And, and I, I, I don't know. I wish I could make that more obvious, but it's okay that it's, 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 it's an experience, you know, it's a, it's a full on experience. It's not just a dress or a shirt. And it's, it's sometimes hard to communicate that. I think it's a celebration of not needing perfection, right? It's a celebration of, of the amateur, whether that's a, a kid or an adult. Is yes. that you're, I think people, there was a long period, Kurt Vonnegut wrote a great essay about this decades ago about kind of the death of the amateur. And because mass media gave us a perfect version of everything. And I think narrowcast media like YouTube actually shows because people post all kinds of things from studio perfection to somebody noodling on a guitar in the room. It lets everyone know that it's okay to create and make things that are not perfect or not perfect from day one. And, and picture this clothing. I think you've tapped into that same thing, which is that, you know, people may say, well, my kids, I'll wait till they draw better. It's like, no, it doesn't matter. This is their age. It's appropriate. And also we celebrate everything. There's not a standard of perfection the this is the goal of society appears to be to promote standards of perfection that are unachievable. Maybe that's the goal of commercial right. society and pushing <laughs> an right. And so anything that pushes an opposition to unattainable goals of perfection in in pursuit of uh, of authentic, authentic creativity is to me a giant plus. It's a giant way to prove that um, that we have a culture that's our own. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love imperfection. I love the feeling of handmade. I love everything you just said though. Yes. Like, I don't think things have to be perfect. And if you want it perfect, that's fine. I, it's just not, it's never been what I've, I'm, I'm about. I'm, I have a degree in metal sculpture. Like I, awesome. my stuff was always really crusty and I used old rusty metal and you know, it's just like, it's always been a part of who I, I always wished I could design websites like the kids who came from the architecture school who had these just beautiful, clean things. And mine always looked like my metal sculptures in some way. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. It's just funny. Um, I like I like the handheldness of it and the DIY-ness of it. And I, I do feel like it really, it lends itself to um, 
I don't know, I guess my personality in a lot of ways, it is me personified, I, I, you know, as a sort of the face of the company, it works well because I can very comfortable, comfortably be myself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. This whole, this whole company. I love it. I love it. I hope it lasts a while. It's, it's great. And folks, you can find Jamie also at her own site, J A I M E E Newberry. That's Newberry with an E like the library or Jamie, Jamie that's with two E's and Jamie J A I M E E. It's so nice. You have to say it twice. Jamie, Jamie on Twitter. And, uh, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your, your life's journey and your company's journey. And I wish you all the best in the future with it. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. This is The New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Audio lives at SoundCloud and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman. It was edited by Stephen Schapansky. This episode copyright 2019 by A Periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 4.0 license. Please feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.